tiny little uh, Testament book of Philemon. It is Paul's shortest letter in the New Testament. Um, but as I indicated, it's a, it's a little letter with a really big message as it has powerful, challenging things to say about forgiveness and reconciliation and living together as the people of God. Now, last year, I, I kind of just kind of hit you with the, the, the bulk of the letter. Today, I'm going to back up, and, and this will be a little bit of a different kind of a message, but just to get us focused and moving, would you stand with me, please, as you're able to do that? And let's just go ahead and read uh, Philippians, uh, uh, I mean, Philemon, verses... Um, uh, that's not changing, buddy. Uh, uh, um, verse... Yeah, uh, 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 verses uh, 15 and the first part of verse 16. And this is where we're going to end up focusing today. But let's read this together. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and, and you may be seated. So last week then, having provided for you kind of an overview of the primary message, the fundamental thrust of uh, the book of Philemon, I thought we'd back, go back to the book today and just kind of meander through it a little bit. And in case you're interested, this is pretty much how I tend to read Scripture. I start uh, by finding the gist, the heart, the primary message of the book or the chapter or the, or, or, or the passage that I'm reading, uh, finding that and holding on to that as the context for understanding the rest of that book or chapter or passage. It's very important that you do that. A lot of people sometimes misinterpret or misapply passages of Scripture or verses of Scripture because they don't look at them in the context of where they occur. And so they pull them, pulling them out of context sometimes results in, in misunderstanding them entirely. So first I, I look for the primary message, the heart of what's going on, and then I go back through the passage or book slowly, verse by verse, sometimes word by word, noting whatever kind of jumps out at me. Sometimes something will really hit a nerve. Sometimes something will seem out of place. Sometimes something will just raise a question. But whenever that happens, that's kind of where I stop and, and sit and dig in for a little while. And so that's kind of how I walk through Scripture typically. I do need to give you a little bit of a warning right here, though. If you want to do that, that part where you stop and sit and dig in got to be careful. Sometimes that's where people get in trouble as well, by reading things into the text that aren't really there, making more out of a word or a phrase than the offer ever intended to make out of that word or phrase, which is why it's also important to keep in mind the, 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 the genre of, of the, the Scripture that you're reading. Remember, Philemon is a pastoral epistle, and, and pastoral epistles are real letters written to real people in real-life situations. And that means that this letter was written to be read like a letter, not a theological treatise, but it was written to be read like a letter exhorting Philemon to forgive Onesimus and be reconciled to him. If you start picking through it verse by verse and word by word, and you believe you find there, in some obscure tense of a rare Greek verb, the hidden identity of the Antichrist, I strongly encourage you to take a step back, take a deep breath, and realize you've probably read something into the text that isn't actually there. But with that important caveat in mind, let's just kind of wander a little bit through this letter this morning. For what it's worth, the very first thing that struck me in reading Philemon struck me in the very first verse, where Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. And the thing that first struck me when I first started on this letter, you know, a month and a half ago, whenever it was, was the preposition that appears here in English. It's not there in Greek, but, but, but it's in the genitive in Greek. That, that doesn't matter. Uh, it's where Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not a prisoner for him, not a prisoner with him, not a prisoner on his account, but actually a prisoner of Christ Jesus. A desmios Christu Iesu, a prisoner of Christ. Or simply in English, we might say Christ's prisoner. And that ought to give you something to think about for a while. See, Paul did not see himself as merely a prisoner for the Lord or a prisoner because of the Lord. He saw himself as the prisoner of the Lord. And that understanding made a huge difference for him as he sat day by day with chains around his ankles. Because in Paul's mind, he had never been abandoned to prison. He was the Lord's prisoner, stamped, marked, and owned by Christ. And no chains and no bars could do anything about that. That perspective, that I'm here as Christ's prisoner, not because I did something and someone took advantage of it, but as Christ's prisoner, that perspective allowed him to rejoice in the Lord even in jail. It empowered him to give thanks even in that unpleasant circumstance. So while the Roman authorities may well have imagined that Paul's fate was entirely in their hands, Paul understood quite to the contrary, that he was a captive of the king of the universe, not some mere human emperor. In verse 2, as I pointed out last week, Paul addresses this highly personal letter to two other named individuals and to the church which Philemon was presumably a part of, which raises, for me at least, the curious question, who exactly were Apphia and Archippus? Were they leaders in that church? Because if they were, then it's definitely worth noting that Apphia was a woman. Now, I can't tell you precisely who Apphia was, nor the role she played in this particular drama. The Bible doesn't give us that information. But I can tell you for certain that in an awful lot of cases, an awful lot of Christians have come to some very dogmatic positions in matters that aren't nearly as biblically clear as they claim they are. The truth is, there's a whole lot to the Bible we simply do not know for sure. Because the Bible was not written as a textbook on systematic theology. It was not written as a primer on how to structure a church. And it was not written as a manual on how to conduct a worship service. And people who act like it was, service. People who insist the Bible prescribes, for example, a certain form of worship, are often misreading the Scripture. Verse 6 can be a little hard to render from Greek into English, which makes it a good example of how you can misread Scripture simply by reading it with a 21st century bias. In the 1984 NIV version, it translates verse 6 this way. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Now, to be clear, that is a perfectly valid translation of the Greek. But it's also a terrific example of how reading Scripture with a present-day bias can cause you to misread it. 
For instance, when you, as a good 21st century evangelical Christian, read the words, be active in sharing your faith. I suspect you might read those words and conclude this verse instructs you to go out and tell others about Jesus, to be active in sharing your faith. Because in contemporary evangelical lingo, sharing your faith is a euphemism for telling people about Jesus. The problem is, that's not at all what Paul's saying here. The Greek word translated here as sharing is the word koinonia. And so in language that's less likely to be accidentally misread, the gist of what Paul is saying is something more like this. As you fellowship, share, and participate with others in your faith, you'll be energized to recognize every good thing in us in Christ. In other words, at least in this verse, rather than saying go out there and witness to the lost, Paul is saying press in here with other believers and make it your point as you do so to grab hold of the good we have together in Christ. Back in verse 5, Paul said, In essence, I've heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for for his people. And So now in verse 6, he says, Keep sharing in that faith with others participating in that faith with others, fellowshipping in that faith with others so you can grow up in Jesus. Now, there's a whole lot more I could go and just kind of pick and and meander through this book, but I want to focus the rest of my time on verses 15 and 16 uh, for a couple of reasons. First, because verses 15 and 16 provide a good example of some of the ambiguity you run into when reading the Bible. And second, because it provides a perfect opportunity for addressing a major charge leveled against Christianity today. Verse 15 and the first part of verse 16 say this, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Now I believe the ambiguity found here can best be expressed in two questions. Question number one, what exactly was the nature of Philemon's or of Onesimus's service to Philemon? And question number two, was Paul here calling on Philemon to alter that relationship and that status? The Greek word translated here as slave is the word doulos. It's most often translated as slave or bondservant, but it is worth noting that the precise nature of the relationship between a doulos and his master could vary significantly. Slavery in first century Palestine bore very little resemblance to the race-based chattel slavery that has marred and scarred this nation for so long. At the time of Paul's writings, slaves were typically either forced into that status by profound economic hardship or as a consequence of being captured in war, or they could voluntarily enter that status as more or less indentured servants to pay back a debt or quite simply to have food to eat and a place to live. That Onesimus had served Philemon as a doulos is clear. The precise nature and origin of that relationship is not. Had Philemon purchased him as property? Or had they simply entered into some sort of indentured servitude contract? The second great ambiguity relates to Paul's expectation of Philemon, as that expectation relates to Onesimus' status with him. When Paul wrote, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, was he telling Philemon to release Onesimus from his status as a bondservant? Whatever that status was, 
slave, indentured servant, or whatever? Or was he telling him to welcome Onesimus back, still occupying that former role, but now loved and treated as a brother in Christ, not merely a household servant? The answer is, it's not clear. The issue of slavery in the New Testament is a difficult one, and one that's led many people to level allegations of immorality at Christianity and the Bible. A lot of people today suggest the Bible's an immoral book. Christianity is an immoral religion. And one of their reasons for leveling that challenge is they contend Christianity and the New Testament support the institution of slavery. Adherents of the nation of Islam, for example, often decry Christianity as slave religion. And many modern opponents of the faith denounce Christianity as having supported that dehumanizing practice. Frederick Douglass was an American slave uh, in, in the South during the time where slavery was common. He eventually made his way up north and ended up with a career as a prominent writer and lecturer. and became a fairly famous person. In telling his own story of growing up as a slave in the American South, he wrote caustically, bitingly, about southern slaveholders who were simultaneously professing Christians. He wrote, for example, nearly perishing with hunger when food in abundance lay molding in the safe and storehouse, and our pious mistress was aware of the fact. And yet that mistress and her husband would kneel every morning and pray that God would bless them in basket and store. In another place he wrote, In August 1832, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting held in Bayside, Talbot County, and there experienced religion. I indulged a faint hope that his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves, and that if he did not do this, it would at any rate make him more kind and humane. I was disappointed in both those respects. Quite to the contrary, Douglas continues, my master found religious sanction for his cruelty. As an example, I've seen him tie up a lame young woman and whip her with a heavy cowskin upon her naked shoulders, causing the warm red blood to drip. And in justification of the bloody deed, he would quote this passage of Scripture from Luke 12, He that knoweth his master's will and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes. Douglas concludes later in this more or less autobiography, I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the, under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders find the strongest protection. For of all the slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. Because so many people today freely accuse Christianity of abetting slavery, I felt compelled walking through Philemon to address the accusation. The heart of the argument is that the New Testament supports the institution of slavery based on its refusal to aggressively call for its abolition. The concept of slavery is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. And detractors will note that not once in all those mentions does the Bible demand the end of the practice. And in fact, at least in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, slaves are discouraged from feeling compelled to change their status. 
The argument is then made that by failing to call for an end to slavery, the New Testament actually thereby endorses it. Add to that the tragic history of countless, at least Southern Christians, who used Scripture to defend their slaveholding, and at first glance, at least, the shoe seems to fit. But only, I would suggest, at first glance, and then only if you don't look very carefully. The fundamental problem with the assertion that failing to call for an end to slavery proves the Bible's support for it, the fundamental problem with that argument is that it is wildly anachronistic. It's an assertion that, assertion that makes no sense whatsoever, given the time disparity between then and now. Today, you live in a Today, you live in a radically um, politicized era. You live in a time when everything is treated like a political issue that demands some sort of political action. Everything today calls for protest, and every protest today is expected to result in an executive order, a court ruling, or some sort of legislative action. But that way of thinking and that way of living is honestly pretty new. In many ways, it's an offspring of Marxist thought, which moves the responsibility for sin and wrong away from the individual to institutions. And to expect that kind of fairly modernist thinking from the earliest Christians, living as they did under the heel of the Roman Empire, is not even remotely a reasonable expectation. At the time the New Testament was written, concerted opposition to government-approved institutions was way more likely to result in arrest or execution than it was to result in change. The first Christians did not live in a democratic republic. They lived as a tiny, misunderstood minority in a rank dictatorship. It was not a world, and they were not a people, inclined to protest or clamor or campaign for their ideals. Think about it. Clearly, the first Christians opposed idolatry, but you also never find them petitioning the government to shut down pagan temples. The other more significant reason the first Christians did not spend more energy condemning the inhuman institution of slavery is that their focus was on other things, specifically on presenting Jesus as Lord, introducing people to him, then training them to live for him in this broken, fallen world. Their focus was not on changing institutions. Their focus was on changing people, seeing them reconciled to God and then becoming the people God created them to be, living the lives God created them to live, people who, when changed, would then go on to impact other people. And so the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, and here it is, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Here you find the apostles' primary focus, not reshaping the institutions of society, but saving and changing the lives of people, people who would then go on to live lives that demonstrate the goodness of the kingdom of God. You need to remember that the apostles were on the leading edge. They were at the very beginning. They were laying the foundation of a movement that would ultimately reshape the world and that would eventually bring about an end to the institution of slavery. 
Their fundamental objective was to bring people to new life in Christ, then teach them how to live it out, which did mean, however, from time to time, the subject of slavery would come up. And when it did, the New Testament position was clear. For example, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He wrote to the church in Corinth, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And we see it here again in Philemon, where Paul tells Philemon to welcome Onesimus no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a brother. Whether Paul was instructing Philemon to release Onesimus from his servant status or not, the New Testament point is clear. There is no distinction in the Lord between slave or free. Their humanity makes them equally precious, and in Christ they are one, brothers and sisters in the family of God. Additionally, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes about the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. And then he kind of goes on to make a sort of a list. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. You see, in the New Testament position, slave trading is on par with murder. It's a behavior of the ungodly, the unholy, and the sinful. It's an activity wholly contrary, the next verse tells us, to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul tells slaves expressly, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Why? Because the human institution of slavery was recognized by the apostles as an evil in this world. The bottom line is the New Testament does not promote slavery. Even though without a doubt, as Frederick Douglass testified, lots of professing Christians in history treated it as if it did. That should be for you and me a stark and sober warning, not to take Scripture out of context, not to use Scripture to justify what we want it to say. And I should note again that it is equally true throughout human history that those who most vigorously opposed slavery consider themselves as well followers of Jesus. Those professing Christians who approved of slavery did so in violation of the heart and message of the Bible, twisting scriptures to serve their purposes rather than submitting themselves to God in the plain truth, the simple message of the gospel. The difference between the apostles and their modern-day critics, however, and this goes back to what I shared earlier, is that the apostles understood and taught that this world is not our home and we are no longer to live primarily for it. Thus, Paul continues in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 7, For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. It's about what's changed in you through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Christian position is consistent. As far as this life is concerned, it is less about your circumstances and more about how you respond to them. No matter what our critics may say, that is not immoral. It's just a form of morality they don't like. It's a morality rooted in a deep commitment to elevate God's will and God's purposes above our own comfort 
and security. It's a morality focused on God, not on us. It's a morality that honors self-sacrifice and surrendering our rights rather uh, for a higher cause rather than constantly fighting for them. It's a morality very different than the one we find in the first century Roman Empire or the 21st century American Republic. Sadly, the ugly history of using Scripture to justify sin, including the horrible sin of slavery, is long and real and undeniable, and we have to own that. But that's not at all the same thing as saying the New Testament justifies slavery or that Christianity in its truest form in any way stands with that institution. And on that note, I want to close this morning with a final word from Frederick Douglass, who felt compelled to append his life story, the one I read excerpts from earlier, with these words. What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible distance, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for the power and clarity of your word. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us know you and love you as you are. Help us live lives as you desire us to live them. Forgive us for the times we ourselves have misread your word and twisted it for our own gain. We thank you that your word is true and right and good because you are true and right and good. In Christ Jesus our Lord and by the power and working of your Holy Spirit within us, make us more and more like you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.